A lot of my friends that I grew up with are either in jail or they're in exile. Frances Hui became a pro-democracy activist in Hong Kong when she was only 14 years old. Now she's living in exile in the United States. While they are putting millions of Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps, they are also doing that to Tibetans when they are also putting thousands of Hong Kongers in jail. They realize none of these human rights abuses comes to any cost. And that bar for accountability keeps getting lower and lower. In this episode, she shares her remarkable story and her hopes and her fears for her city. We are going to have a generation that don't know what's right or wrong. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Francis Wei, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Well, I am, frankly, I'm, I'm honored um, to have you on here. Uh, it's I my have... honor, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you're the, you're the first official... Hong Kong asylee in America, as, as I understand it, which I'm very, very happy that that, that happened, of course. Why, why don't we actually start there? Um, why don't you tell me your story? Because you even started in the pro-democracy movement very early in life, right? And it's kind of an amazing story. Tell me about that. Well, so I was born and raised in Hong Kong. Um, I just, you know, grew up as a normal kid. Um, and I guess I just learned a lot about how, you know, Hong Kong is fairly different from China, like the rest of China. And, um, you know, I grew up learning that we have freedom of speech, like judicial independence and rule of law. I was actually inspired by, you know, a bunch of students that went to the street and um, protest against a, a, an education scheme. And one of the leader of it is Joshua Wong. And so I joined Joshua Wong's um, organization, which is called the Scholarism. And it's basically all a bunch of students um, rallying on the street at that time. And since then, I have always become like an activist uh, for Hong Kong. And so it, it kind of dated back to like when I was 14 years old. And then I just continued to speak up for political issues in Hong Kong and um, continue to be very active in pro-democracy movement. And then later on, I came to the United States to study journalism. It's a very long story how I became an asylee um, for Hong Kong, but um, eventually I was you know, banned by Hong Kong, and and I understand that there are threats um, coming to me um, if I continue to stay in Hong Kong, and so I had to leave um, Hong Kong um, eventually in 2020. Well, first of all, you know, not every 14-year-old is motivated to stand up for their rights. How did that happen? You know, that's an interesting question. Uh, some people ask me, is that because of my family? Like. Is there anything happen that motivate me? But to be honest, like I don't have any background of like growing up in you know a family that's like a bunch of, like full of activists or that kind of stuff. My family is a normal family, but it's just like seeing protests on the streets and um, learning about actually the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre when I was 10. Um, it was shocking. Like I remember um, before. I was 10, like, like for my first 10th years, I thought I'm a Chinese. Like, I was proud about, like, the Beijing Olympics, 
you know, Hong Kong is part of China and like we're nothing different from Chinese, uh, like mainland Chiinese. Um, but then learning about the Tiananmen Square massacre was like shocking to me. You know, seeing all these like pictures and videos of bloody bodies getting, you know, ripped over like by tanks and stuff like that. And there are just students who want democratic change for their country. Like they are truly nation-loving people and they want freedom for themselves. It's just shocking to know that when I was 10 years old. And so I went to the first, like my first time going to a public rally was actually um, the Tiananmen Square massacre vigil in Hong Kong, which is not no longer a thing anymore in Hong Kong. Um, but it's truly amazing to experience being in the crowd and like surrounded by people who have the same values and chanting same slogan that like we want freedom and democracy we want accountability it's really amazing and um, that opened my eyes to learn that we truly have a privilege in Hong Kong to speak up for ourselves for people who don't get, have to voice you know protesting being able to protest and to rally out on the streets it's, it's really a privilege and um, I learn about that and I figure out like I should, you know, pay more attention to what's happening around me. And I realize like the government is trying to integrate us uh, to China um, through education. And I would be the first generation to experience um, patriotic education if those educational scheme is passed. And, and then that's inspired me to went to the streets and eventually joined the first movement with scholarism. So this is really fascinating. I just want to touch on one more thing here. So for many viewers of this show, I believe, they was view patriotic education as something very positive. In fact, there's a lack of it here in this country. That's, how, that's what they would say. And I, I think they would be right to say that. Why did you see patriotic education as a problem? Yeah, um, so it's a little different in China. The scheme that they propose is, is an iteration of, of history. They don't talk about Tiananmen Square Massacre. They don't talk about Cultural Revolution. If they ever talk about it, they would brush off their atrocities and bring positive impacts into what they have done. So, like, the kind of patriotic education that Chinese is bringing out to Hong Kongers is you have to speak Mandarin. Um, there is a model answers for the history, which is not true. Um, and also, they would tell you it's good that like we are putting Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps. We're just educating them to erase, you know, extremists um, and terrorists. I I don't think those are accurate um, versions of history that we should learn and it's certainly brainwashing us to believe that oh China is a good country that we should all feel belong to and that's a strange to me well so I think I think what I hear you saying right is is basically it's all framing things from the perspective of the Chinese Communist Party being this great benevolent entity that that we should all be and you know, it's about with. all. It's kind of like in religion that you have to believe. Um, there's a model answer that you have to, you know, get a perfect score on your paper. I think that's how it works. And, and that's why we call it brainwashing educations. And it shouldn't, you know, be imposed in Hong Kong. This is in 2012 when we still have pretty good degree of, you know, freedom. 
and we were able to push the like pressure the government to suspend the program but now it's it's again it's implemented in Hong Kong already there's nothing that we can do um, they have already resumed that through the national security educations and all the students like high school middle school elementary schools even in universities um, students have to take those classes in order to graduate um, so you know, it's a huge decline in Hong Kong's um, situation. I mean, it's incredible. So then we had the umbrella movement mm -hmm. subsequent. So we're charting, we're charting a course here from 2012. Basically, I'm imagining to the implementation of the national security law. That was what really flipped everything, right? Yeah, yeah, in 2020. Tell me a little bit about what it was that had you worrying about your future at the hands of the authorities. Because at the beginning, you, were, you would go to these protests and it wasn't threatening, right? At, at least at the beginning, but then things changed. And I guess I, I want to kind of get a sense of that. I think every time when we go onto the streets, there is still, you know, there is one part where fear that this is going to happen. Um, we fear that the education scheme is going to move forward and the next generations and my generations would go, grow up in a very different environment, um, learning a different version of history. But there is also a part of hope that through our work and our activism, there could be change. And so that's why that kind of motivates us to go onto the streets every time and to speak up about these issues. But what really discouraged us is like, it's when we realize no matter how hard we try, there's nothing that we can control. I think that happens to Hong Kongers when the national security law came down to Hong Kong in 2020. It was a law that was um, forcibly imposed by the CCP. None, no Hong Kongers were consulted. It didn't went through legislative process to get passed. It was. It all came down in just one month, and they started arresting people on the same on the first day, and. And the, as, as soon as we realized it's a huge threat, they already arrested you know, 47 top leading figures from, uh, in Hong Kong, which drove the movement going on. Um, and I mean, those are people like friends of mine like, that I grew up um, throughout my activism in Hong Kong. And just learning, all of them went to jail and um, you know, went to jail for speaking up the truth, for fighting for freedom. Um, that's when we realize maybe there are other ways that we can fight for freedom and one of the solutions that I got is to go to exile and continue to speak up about Hong Kong on an international level. Was there a particular moment in this trajectory from 2012 when you first became involved to 2020 when you know the, the wall came down completely so to speak? Do you remember some specific moments where you really felt there was this fundamental, something had really changed, something had really transformed from, because Hong Kong, I mean, economically, was one of the freest societies in the world, <laughs> you know? Um, now it's not, not at all, right? And same, with, same with freedom of speech. There's incredible freedom of speech in Hong Kong. Well, I would say Hong Kong government's strategy was to put you in a room temperature water and like cook you up um, without you realizing it. 
So, you know, in 2019, we still think that there are hope that we can change things. And I, I, I do think it, it was, it was the last fight of Hong Kongers that we really feel like we might be able to sparkle some like strong resistance against the Chinese government, and it did because millions of Hong Kongers went to the streets. It never happened before, um, and a lot of young people went to the streets. Like that includes some of my classmates who never care about politics before, and so it, it was it was really hopeful at that time. But before that, we already seen different integration scheme proposed by the government. You know, immigrations scheme, policy, making it easy for uh, mainland Chinese to reside in Hong Kong. So I'll just jump in, thereby changing the culture of free thought and so yeah, forth, Yeah, right? and, yeah, and they try to undermine the values of Cantonese and the Hong Kong culture while we grow up. Um, and there are also like disappearance of bookstore keeper simply because they sell books about Xi Jinping and the CCP. And so five of them disappeared out of nowhere. That was before 2019. And I think there are a lot of things that happened that warned Hong Kong people that something is wrong. But 2019 was the moment that people finally woke up and say, this is enough. We can't do this anymore. And you should fulfill the promise during the handover. There is a promise that Hong Kong people should have the rights to vote for their leader, to ha have the rights to vote for the chief executive and elect the chief executive. That never happened. And that was like the last fight for freedom in Hong Kong, I guess. It's a difficult thing to think about. You know, I, I got to travel to Hong Kong in 2019 in that year and got to meet with some of the amazing people who were actively working to try to foster freedom, who were putting everything on the line. Well, the movement was joined by people from all walks of life. There are lawyers, there are journalists, students, um, you name it, any kind of, like businessmen, any leaders in different industry, they all come together because they understand if Hong Kong don't get the freedom, the judicial independence and the rule of law, it's not going to be Hong Kong anymore. There's nothing about Hong Kong that's more special than the International Financial Center, like the status of it, and also, you know, the freedom we get. And so that's why everyone is stepping out and say, this is enough. But there were still a lot of people, and this is, this is what I find kind of interesting, right? In every, every one of these situations, I've watched this, you know, my parents, they came from communist Poland, they had to get out in the 70s, that's how I ended up in Canada and then later here changed, of course, changed my life, <laughs> changed their lives. But in any one of these situations, there's people that have that exactly the sense that you have, and you know, millions of Hong Kongers did. But then there's also a lot of people that have a different view too, right? And, you know, and even like I remember there was this, uh, you know, there were different stores, some stores that were pro-protester and, and coffee shops and things, and then there were other ones which were anti. And it became this kind of, uh, it's, it's very interesting, right? So what do, what do you think of the people who were, keep the status quo, this isn't so bad, it's going to be okay, maybe we even want, maybe even want the, the mainland approach, I don't know. Because it, it, well, it was a substantive number, right? It um, is, yeah. yeah. Well, first, I don't blame them, but they're also the people who are, it's an extension of the CCP in repressing people who fight for freedom and democracy for them too. Um, a lot of times they attack 
pro-democracy protesters. A trend that we see is a lot of them are more on the older generations. They, you know, experienced um, under British colonization and they feel like having that background, they feel more connected to China. I can understand that, and but a lot of times these people are also, they don't want to change. They think Hong Kong is good, they have the freedom to go, you know, go around and it's not as strict as mainland China, um, they still have the freedom to do whatever they want. But the kind of liberties that we want is the right to speak up for, the tr like speak up the truth and not having to experience like persecutions because we speak up and, and say the truth. And I don't think they understand that. I think they only care about their personal life not being violated. But at the point when their privacy is violated, it's too late. So let's, let's get a little more kind of thoughtful here. And so how, in your experience now, how important, and this is a big issue in America right now, there's big questions about the value of freedom of speech, right? So, but for just looking at your Hong Kong experience, how important is freedom of speech to this whole enterprise? I think a lot of people who are against this, they don't understand that the future generations is gonna suffer if they don't grow up in an environment that they can speak up and truly live what it feels to have freedom of speech. I was fortunate enough that I experienced that golden period of like era of Hong Kong that I got to be engaged in civil society. I, I can go to the streets and fight for my own freedom and to really fight for it, to stand on the front line. But a lot of the young people now that are at my age, they don't get to grow up in that environment. They don't get to learn all about it. We are gonna have a generation that don't know what's right or wrong. They don't fight for themselves. They're going to go along with what the government is telling them or giving them. And um, I think the freedom of speech is also a practice of, of you know, continue to think and have critical thinking and challenging, questioning the status quo, I think. Uh, what CCP is doing in Hong Kong is telling the world that, you know, we're going to demolish this free society. and. No matter what the world is saying, we will take over the city like we are going to take over the world with our authoritarian values. I think there are a lot of lessons that people can learn from the movement of Hong Kong, but also what other communities are experiencing, like Uyghurs, Tibetans, um, even Taiwanese, and, and you know, Chinese citizens themselves. Like, they're becoming a huge threat to um, democratic values in the world. So you actually work with a group that is looking to help free some of these, Hong Kong, those 47 and many more Frank, since, frankly, that have been arrested. So I want you to tell me about that and what, like, what, what the idea is behind that, just briefly. Yeah. yeah, so I work for Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong Foundation, which is a nonprofit that's um, based in Washington, D.C. and also London. Um, and a lot of what we're doing is to call for the release of political prisoners in Hong Kong and to continue to put shining lights on the situation of Hong Kong in international arena and to make sure they understand, you know, politicians, they should prioritize human rights on their agenda when they're crafting policies for China. There's a lot of talk these days about, you know, the U.S. has gone too far 
you know, been too involved in other places. We really need to look back. There's a lot of problems back home. There's, these are, you know, arguments that need to be seriously considered, right? That that need to be dealt with. Why are we looking outside? Why are we? Uh, why why would we want to influence? Uh, you know, in other countries, they have different values. Why would we? put honk, you know, human rights restrictions on a country, yeah, yeah. right? Well, as I was saying, like, I've heard that a lot. Like, people are saying, like, oh, we have our domestic issues. We have a lot to deal with ourselves. Like, why bother to talk about foreign policy? But it's not an either-or situation. You can still care about domestic issues, but also knowing that there are authoritarian regimes around us that are trying to undermine um, what we're trying to defend, which is freedom and democracy. And that's, you know, a core values of America is, is democracy. There are humans, like actually young people, people like my age, that people I grew up with that are sitting in jail right now, or they have to leave their home and to a foreign country and cut ties with their families. And because we have freedom and we have democracy in America, it also means that we have the privilege to speak up for the voiceless, um, for those who are suffering under um, authoritarian regimes. And at the same time, I think the reason why I, we talk about human rights when, uh, in, in foreign policy, um, especially toward China, is because now we're, we're friends of China. We continue to make trades with China, continues the economic interactions and diplomatic engagement with China. And so while they are putting you know millions of Uyghur Muslims in, in concentration camps when they are also doing that to Tibetans when they are also putting thousands of Hong Kongers in jail they realize none of these human rights abuses comes to any cost they don't get to held accountable and so they continue and that bar for accountability keeps getting lower and lower and in the US we keep saying there's nothing that we can do because it's a foreign country. No, there is something that you can do by telling them there is a consequence of doing all these things to your citizen. There is a consequence of transnational repression. There is a consequence when you abuse human rights. And there is a way for us to stop this and say, let's come back to the table and tell China that if you are not going to improve or change the way you, you, you were working, then there's no talk here, right? Well, that that would be a bold move because that 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 really hasn't happened a lot, except perhaps in trade. That was the kind of the one area where I where I've seen sort of activity like that. And I think the, yeah. one of the problem is we rely a lot on China too. Um, we develop a lot of economic reliance on China in the past decades, um, and that's why it's hard for us to cut ties too. Um, I think that's one of the problems that we have to deal with um, in, in the upcoming future. Absolutely. Well, I'm just, you know, I'm thinking of, I have a friend, uh, Falun Gong practitioner named Charles Lee, who when he was in the labor camp, he was actually making Homer Simpson slippers, this kind of slipper where you put your, the mouth of Homer goes around your foot, basically, like fun slippers, right? You wouldn't think of the fact that they're being made in a labor camp by someone who's a prisoner of conscience. And that's also that's also a very real cost, right? A lot of companies, I think, they, I just don't want to know exactly why I'm getting such a good deal on this on this merchandise, right? Because there's just been this kind of attitude that I I, I just don't want to know the details, but I'm getting the cheap goods, 
right? And that, hence we have this whatever, by different estimates, trillion dollar trade deficit, which itself has massive problems. But. Well, you also remind me that in China there are religious persecutions too. It's not only about us trying to fight for democracy, but also people who have different religious practice, they are all trying to cram them down, like Catholics, Christians in general, and you know, Falun Gong, all sort of different religion are basically you know, under oppression of the CCP, and they want the people to see them as a religion. Like Xi Jinping is, is the leader of this religion. Um, even for like different religion that's hap like that exists in China, there is a term called sinicization, which is like adapting their religious values with the Chinese society values, and. Well, I'll just jump in. Communist Party values, right? It, yeah. Yes. Right. Yes. It's sinicization, but it really means Chinese Communist Party values, right? Yeah. And yeah. Well, it it it's it's normal that we when when a religion say I I grew up in a Catholic family when this religions come to China there are some sort of like adaptations of like with the culture uh, like the local culture there in order to you know get close to the people there like that makes sense but what synthesization is doing is to completely change the values that this religion is teaching you with the CCP's values right so the, that's different the, things. The theme I get here, okay, just it's it's interesting as our conversation develops here, is just that it's a very total, like the, basically the Chinese Communist Party values have to be the values that everyone follows. And if they're not that, then we're going to change you to be that. Or put you in jail. <laughs> right. Or, you know, demolish your church and um, control your church, actually. That's exactly what's happening, and the Vatican also have, you know, a private deal with 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 China. If you continue to back up and continue to compromise, the values that we learn from Bible, it's no longer there. You are basically compromising everything that's important in 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 the Bible, right? Incredibly important discussion I think we're having here. What has been the reaction in Washington D.C. as you do your advocacy? I think we're not doing enough. I think there are so much more that American politicians can do to challenge the situation, um, how we are dealing with China, and how we talk about the situation in Hong Kong. Um, I think there are a lot we can do, but I do see there is, you know, increasing attentions on um, CCP's threats to world democracy and, you know, our own economy. And I, I really hope that. We're not going back to the time to say this is not my matter, and you know, very importantly, it's to hold China accountable in all sort of different ways. You know, often American thought leaders' episodes are actually translated into Chinese, and you know, actually make it into places like Hong Kong and Communist China and so forth um, with the subtitles. If you if you had some kind of you know message to some of your friends that are now in jail or friends back in Hong Kong? A lot of my friends that I grew up with, that I met during my activism, a lot of them are either in jail or they're in exile. It's really sad the generations of Hong Kongers, my generation is experiencing this, is going through this. And I can stress enough how I admire the courage um, of them to be standing on the front line. And a lot of them, even when they have the opportunity to leave um, like I did, they 
they decided to stay in Hong Kong because they they understand that this is where they are going to stay forever for their life and they're going to devote their life there. One thing I, I was truly inspired by Jimmy Lai before he went to jail, before like his bail was rejected, he said he came from China at a young age and developed his own business there and then got all sort of freedom and built this like pro-democracy newspaper himself. Um, and before he went to jail, he said, I owe freedom to Hong Kong because I didn't have that before. And so I owe it, now I'm paying it back. So he had all ways to leave Hong Kong, but he decided to stay because he think all the freedom he had or he has was all because of Hong Kong. And so he's paying back to the city. And that's just, wow, like I was like, that's right. Like the freedom that I get here right now, it's actually from my friends, a lot of them who sacrificed for it. And I have to say this, like this, it's my responsibility to continue to speak up for them. And I think it's a responsibility for many Hong Kongers who left Hong Kong um, to continue to speak up for those who don't have the voice and to let people know that there are still a thousand of them that are locked behind bars simply because they fight for freedom and speak the truth, same as what we did. So um, I would really thank them for what they have done and endured in, in these periods. And I, I really hope that I one day we can unite in Hong Kong and um, you know sing songs and eat the food that we like and you know just live a normal life as teenagers or young people should have um, and I, I really long for the day that we can see each other yeah well Francis Hui it's such a pleasure to have had you on thank you very much it's a pleasure to speak to you too Thank you all for joining Francis Hui and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek.